0: Okay. Well, exciting. It's been uh, really remarkable to think that it's been a year since we've been here. That's incredible. Time is flying by. Guys, listen, life is short. You better live for the Lord. (laughs) Life is going to pass you by just like that, you know, and there's nothing more important than to live for God and for His glory and for His kingdom because you will never regret it. But I tell you what, If we waste our time, if we don't redeem the time, we will regret it, and we will be sorry that we did not spend our days more filled with the things of God in our own lives. And so, yeah, perfect opportunity for you moms as a reminder and exhortation for you to fill your homes with the glory of God and with His Word. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to just add to that uh, announcement of the the men's fellowship here. Uh, We got the okay to meet here Saturday mornings, guys. Uh, you want get, to come get pummeled every Saturday morning, you're welcome to, to come and be convicted along with the rest of us, but uh, that will be, uh, I'll, I think we're going to meet probably around nine o'clock in the morning, uh, not too early. If some of you guys are early risers, you guys are probably, well, wow, that's pretty late, you know, some of us stay up late at night, you know, we burn the midnight oil studying and things like that, okay, so nine o'clock is a good medium, I think, for all of us, so I think we'll we'll do it nine o'clock, um, not not this Saturday coming up, but the following Saturday, okay, we got to take a couple of minutes to, or a couple, um, uh, you know, we need to uh, order some books, get them in your hands, and uh, take a couple weeks to do that, so, okay, why don't we... Uh, why don't we pray for our time together, and uh, we'll get right into the passage of Scripture today. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so utterly dependent upon Your mercy and Your grace. Father, we're so utterly dependent upon the fact that without Jesus becoming poor, without Him taking upon self-inflicted impoverishment, as it were, Lord, we would forever remain bankrupt. Lord, destitute of every conceivable blessing in life, and more importantly, in the heavenly places. But Lord, we're so grateful that Jesus, our great example of absolute perfect humility, perfect condescension perfect sacrifice, Lord, that He left us an example to follow and that that example should fuel our generosity towards the body of Christ. Oh, God, help us to learn from Him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, last week we looked at the subject of generosity, and really we've started chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Second Corinthians, which has to do with money, and so every time, you know, I talk about money, I feel like I need to make a few qualifications, you know, and uh, the, the one qualification that I'll make right up front is that the whole subject of money and Christian giving and all of these things is a sorely neglected subject in the church. We think that because of the abuses, we think because of the fact that, you know, we turn on the television and we find faith teachers and prosperity preachers telling you to send in your money and sow your seed of faith so that your life will improve and things like that, or that you'll have your miracle as long as you have your money and put your money in the, in the mail for them. It's amazing. you got to mail them the money in order to get your miracle, right? It's not just give your money to your local church. Go, God doesn't accept that. So you got to send it to that particular ministry. But you know, the abuses go on and on and on. And in light of all of those abuses, uh, the church is sort of, uh, you know, bears the, 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 the marks of that and has and remained with the baggage of that so that we need to c- constantly remind ourselves that there is a positive theology in the Bible about money and that money is not taboo and that money is not something that we shouldn't talk about or be afraid to talk about, you know? And so for me, I, I exercise great boldness today and just being frank About what the Bible tells us about money. And last week uh, we looked at different characteristics of generosity. Today I want to look at this aspect of generosity because that's what Paul is calling the church to do, to be generous. Remember, this is the situation. There are poor Christians in Jerusalem that need help, it's that simple. Other churches around the Roman Empire, like the region of Macedonia, have stirred themselves up to give to this to this to this effort to aid in the alleviation of these poor Christians. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they ought to as well be stirred up to give and to give generously. And you see that if you go to back to chapter eight. Um, For example, in verse three, verse two and verse three, he gives them the example of the Macedonian churches. And he says, Look, they, in their poverty, they overflowed with liberality. And in chapter three, he says, Look, they gave according to what they were able, and even beyond their ability, beyond what they were able to do, they gave because they were that generous. Now, in this section of the letter, the letter the whole subject of generosity really hits a high point. And it hits a high point because it's about Christ. And it's therefore gospel-centered generosity. It's not just about Christ, but it's also about His work. It's about the person and work of Christ, even as we will see. So, gospel-centered generosity, that's our focus. And if we are gospel-centered, I know that word Gospel centered just kind of becomes kind of trendy, doesn't it? You resonate with that, anyone, or is it just me? But yeah, but the truth is this is that we are in an evangelical context of scripture, as we're going to go on to see. And it's actually very deep evangelical uh, theology here. Evangelical, I mean gospel. That's what uh, that's where the word evangelical comes from. It comes from the word gospel. There's three things that ought to characterize gospel-centered generosity. Number one, it should have balance in it. It should be a balanced generosity. And also, it should have love as its motive. And then last of all, it should have Christ as its example. Let's look at the first one. It should have balance as its aim, we could say. It should have balance as its aim. And you know that because of verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. He says, but just as you abound in everything, and then he defines that, In faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. The gracious work is the work of giving and contributing to this collection. And so he's saying, first of all, you have an abundance that's actually kind of a play on words for Paul. He's saying, look, you have been abundantly supplied in these ways. In everything, you have been blessed in a very strong way, in a very forceful way. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to see this great abundance. Because Paul is wanting to say, look, God has so lavishly blessed you in so many spiritual ways that are evident. And the comparison is this, just as, that's how he starts the verse, just as, that's the comparison he's going to make. And look at how God did, in fact, lavishly pour out his grace gifts on the church. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. That's the greatest gift of all the grace of God in Christ Jesus, salvation. And we'll come back to that idea. But he says, that in everything you were enriched in him. That's that language of being made rich actually comes from the word that means riches. And the verb literally means you have been bestowed with riches. You've been decked out with riches, with riches. He says, He says, you have been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this passage right here is going to set the precedent for the rest of the book, 1 Corinthians, for the rest of the book. He's going to talk about uh, spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about, you know, obviously the abuse of spiritual gifts, but if there's one thing we know about the church of Corinth is that they were flowing in the gifts, right? There was no lack of spiritual gifts going on in that church. Now, Paul wants to sort of capitalize on a few of them here. He gives them five things and points them out quickly. Now, remember, this is kind of parenthetical. This is not his main point, okay, to launch into the exercise or the 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 activity of these spiritual gifts, but he's reminding them of that which they are so keenly familiar with, that they can resonate with, they can relate to. Yeah, that's right. God has blessed us in this way. We do have the exercise of this gift and that gift going on in our church, so it's right there in front of them. Paul says that that, that they excel in faith, And there, he's probably referring to the type of faith mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is the gift of faith. It is not salvific faith. It is not faith and repentance leading to salvation, but it is a faith to work miracles. It is miracle-working faith. It is the faith to, to heal, and it is the faith that comes in an extraordinary way to some individuals. Some people are given the gift of faith. They just have more faith than other people, but... More, uh, probably more uh, uh, specifically, it's referring to that that ability to work miraculous miracles, wonders, signs and wonders through faith, healing through faith, etc. Secondly, notice he focuses on their speech. He says they've been blessed with utterance. And here, he's not so much probably talking about the eloquence that comes with, let's say, an Apollos, right? We know Apollos. Apollos was an eloquent man. He was probably a profound preacher, uh, as opposed to Paul. According to Scripture, Paul was not really probably a good preacher. He says he doesn't even talk very well. He says he doesn't. He's not good at communicating. Matter of fact, they say his speech is despicable, contemptible. He was probably laughable. Oh boy! But don't be deceived. The content of what he's saying was unparalleled, profound. Isn't that sad that today when you go to a church, the first thing that people are looking for is what's the style? What's the manner? How eloquent is the preacher? How funny is he? How talented is he? What's the music like? In other words, we have been conditioned by our society to look for entertainment. And then second of all, in secondary or somewhere down the line, then we begin to ask questions about content, about the truth. It shouldn't be that way. But uh, what Paul is talking about here in terms of utterance is far more than just eloquence. It falls into the category of all the other speaking gifts in First Corinthians, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, that certainly both of those things were being exercised there in the church. Also, he says the gift of knowledge. And here, most commentators agree that the knowledge he's talking about here is theological knowledge. Now, this this is really, uh, this is really uh, applicable for us, right? He says, look, you excel in theological knowledge. I think some of us in here excel at theological knowledge. We have a lot going on up here. Some of you know Greek. Some of you know Hebrew. Well, some of you. <laughs> Hebrew is not that easy. So John, you know a little Hebrew. Don't be bashful about it. Praise the Lord. You know, but we have doctrine, we have knowledge, but the question is, is where, when does it go from our head to our hands? And, you know, woe to you if all you have is a bunch of head knowledge. Woe to you if all you are is just a walking, you know, theological encyclopedia, but you don't do anything for anybody. You're so lopsided, you're about to fall over. You need a little balance. You need to be balanced, and that's what he's calling them to do. It's exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, saying, look, if you understand all mysteries, but if you do not have love, you're nothing. You're, just a, you're like a clanging cymbal. That is the type of imbalance that a person can fall into. And by the way, let me just tell you, it is so good for us to be reminded of this. You know Why? Because Scripture tells us that it is not very long before we get out of balance. It's not very long before we can go astray and off the path. And we can forget things that we think, okay, these are just basics. These are the ABCs of Christianity. But guess what? It doesn't take but Monday through Friday for you to forget about the ABCs of Christianity sometimes. It's very easy to become forgetful, okay? The fourth thing is this. He he, he capitalizes on their zeal. Oh, they were zealous in the church. They were zealous for spiritual gifts. That's what it says. They sought to excel in spiritual gifts. So he sort of uses that zeal. And then the fifth thing, he says, also their love. But notice the way that he says this. The love we inspired in you. You know that love can be inspired. In other words, it could be fostered. It could be conditioned, nurtured. It could be cultivated the love, the love of the brethren. So he uses these things to prime the pump, if you would, and get them ready and say, look, you are so zealous, you are so knowledgeable, you have great love, but where are all of those virtues when it comes to your wallet? Because it's very easy in the Christian life to go around doing all sorts of Christian activity and then become strangely irresponsible when it comes to your finances and your giving and your support, now granted, let me make this exegetical qualification, because it's, it's necessary. The context we're looking at here in Second Corinthians doesn't have to do with the normative giving of the church, the offerings of the church. Um, this is a, a special event. This is a, if you would, this is like me getting up here on a Sunday and saying, you know, we're going we're to take up a love offering. We're going to take up a special offering for a missionary on the mission field, okay? That is more accurate to the context that he's talking about. But these principles apply to everything. Obviously, Paul is not saying, it's almost an argument from the, le, from the, the lesser to the greater, right? if you are to give in this way to a select situation, to a specific situation, how much more are you to give with this heart and this attitude in the normative giving of the local church? How much more discipline ought we to be? And that's why Paul says, look, he reminds them of all the things that he had written to them previously about. I like what... uh, I like what uh, Paul tells the Philippians. He says, I write these things again to you, and it's no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. It is safe for us to be reminded. So Paul calls for them to overflow. He says, see, look look at this verse again, see that you abound, there's that word overflow, abound in this gracious work also. And so that means we have to prioritize. We just have to be responsible. And yet we have to be willing to say, look, I'm doing pretty good here. Um, I do have a passion for doctrine. I do serve in the local church. But don't do that without leaving the other things undone. Don't do that to the neglect of other very important issues. It could could be other things. It doesn't have to be money. It could be other areas maybe that you're not serving. Maybe you're faithful in giving to the local church, but you're not faithful in, in participating in the local church. You say, oh, but you don't know how much I give to the church. What does that have to do with fellowship? Well, you don't know how much I give to the local church. What does that have to do with serving? What does that have to do with using other spiritual gifts for the building up of the body? So The second thing is that it also has to have love as its motive. Look at verse 8. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command. It's a very important phrase. He says, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Of your love also. So the very first thing that he wants to appeal to them with is to show them, look, he's not being domineering. He's qualifying this and showing them he's not trying to be a dictator. Hey, you better give to this or you're in sin. Hey, you need to give to this because don't you know the other churches are giving? What's wrong with you? Remember, we talked about this last week. That's not really his tone. That's not his heart. He's not trying to make them jealous of the Macedonian church. He's trying to provoke them to imitation. He wants to provoke them to emulate that example, follow that example, and so he qualifies that by saying this, I am not speaking this as a command, and that's very important because in a church where there's problems and people already kind of have their, you know, their guard up, people already you know, feel like they've gotten their toes stepped on, he's very, very careful to point this out. Let me just read a few scriptures about this, okay? Because this is really reveals to us the heart of the Apostle Paul. These letters, I tell you what, in a unique way, really show us the internal workings of the Apostle Paul. 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I'm not lording, talking about his authority, I'm not lording it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, he says, All of this time you think that we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and it's all for your upbuilding, your edification. And then again, Second Corinthians 10 8, he says, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority just a real same context here okay he says even if you think that we are boasting about our authority he says which the lord gave us for the building up and not for the destroying of you you see that i'm not put to shame another verse chapter 13 verse 10 of this very letter He says, for this reason, I'm writing these things while I'm absent, so that when I'm present, I don't need to use severity in accordance, watch this, with the authority which the Lord gave me for the building up and not for tearing down. He was not spiritually abusive. There is so much spiritual abuse in the body of Christ, pastors who push their way around for people, tell them what to do, make them do things they don't want to do, whatever it may be, financially, all of that. I mean, I've heard churches where elders will go to your church and tell you to open up your checkbook, and and we want to see what you've been doing with your money because we just feel you haven't been giving in in a proper way. You know what? I don't see that in in the Scriptures. I don't see the apostles going around telling people, "Open up your finances. Let me be your, you know, your personal, uh, your personal, uh, whatever, uh, economist, or, or what's the word?" Somebody shouted out, "You got it." <laughs> Maybe another verse that's really clear in the context here. This is Philemon verses eight and nine. He says, "Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper." yet for love's sake i rather appeal to you since i am such a person as paul aged and now also a prisoner of christ jesus look the the apostle paul had so much spiritual authority just upon him he's the apostle paul he's a prisoner of christ he's going to if anyone is in a position to exhort you it's paul he's embedded with the authority of christ and he's in prison for the Lord. Boy, this guy could really admonish you. But he says, you know what? I'd rather appeal to you. What's the point of all of this? Love must must be the motive. It's kind of like with your children, right? You have the authority to tell them what to do. Hey, be nice to your brother. Be nice to your sister. Share. You know, be good. Don't burn the house down while I'm gone, whatever it may be. But you know in the depth of your heart, you want those types of attitudes to flow freely from their heart. So you want to nurture and foster. You want to, you want to uh, train them up in such a way where you're just not just daddy, mommy, the dictator, right? But you want to open their heart up like a flower so that they blossom by themselves. That's a very tricky thing because you have obligations to God. You have obligations to the Word, Think of Paul. He has obligations to make sure that the churches are pure, to make sure that the worship is sound, to make sure that the people are generous and loving and walking in the Spirit. Don't you think Paul could have used 10,000 different biblical arguments why they should give? But he's not being forceful in that way. He's not commanding them to do it. He's wanting to just draw it out. And he sets before them one more time the example of the Macedonians. He says, but as proving through the earnestness of others. What's that? What is that? The earnestness of others. That is a reference to the Macedonian churches. The context of verses 1 all the way to verse uh, 5. That is the context there. Those They are the others. In other words, they should have provoked in you the same kind of sincerity. The same type of love that was found in them should be found in you. And he uses this word, he says, proving. That word there means to test and then to find that it's genuine. That's what he wants to do. He wants to test them, put them to the test, and then find out that their worship is genuine. It's just amazing, absolutely amazing. So like the Macedonian churches who had, been, who had given from sincerity, they'd persevere in the midst of their trials... In the midst of their persecution, remember, the, the reason why the Macedonian churches are so legendary in their giving is, number one, because they're poor, <laughs> number two, because they're persecuted, and number three, because they gave beyond their ability. They gave beyond. They were the generous ones, even though they were in an impoverished position. It's almost not fitting It's almost unnatural how these churches could be so generous, and that's exactly why Paul sets this example in front of them to look at that. And so Paul is wanting them to have the same type of generosity. And let me just bring in another issue here, okay? This is something that I brought up last time. We're looking at this, but what is giving? What is Christian giving? And more important, what is ecclesiastical giving? When the church gathers together to give for a purpose, what do you call that? you know what you call it? You call it worship. That's what it is. It's worship. And that's why it says earlier on in the, in the letter, in, in, up in verse 5, he says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. They first, in other words, devoted their hearts to Christ. They first presented their hearts to the Lord. What would you have me do in this situation? Oh, I pray that in an opportunity, outside maybe even just a normative giving of the church, when that situation arises, that that's what you would do. That you wouldn't even think along the other lines, which is someone else will give to that. No, we're taking up a, a collection for something, a benevolence issue. Somebody's having a hard time, a family, lost their job, mom doesn't work, has to stay at home, the bills are piling up, can't we help? I pray that our first, our gut reaction to something like that would, be n- would not be somebody else will take care of it, but our first reaction, it will always be to, okay, what can I do? No, no, no. What can I really do? How much can I give? Can I give more? Am I giving sacrificially? Am I giving in this way? Is this really, do I feel like what I just did is worship and well-pleasing to the Lord? What a, it just changes your whole perspective. But the reason I bring up the issue of worship is right here in verse 8. He says, Proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. Worship must be sincere. God does not receive perfunctory worship, false worship, uh, uh, mechanical worship, just doing things out of rote. Well, this is what we do. We stand up, sit down, sing four songs, sit back down, read the scriptures. But where is the heart in the midst of all of that? Be careful, dear brethren. Be careful that you don't fall into the same traps that the children of Israel fall. Oh, sure, we're not a theocracy. We are not developing our, bar, our, our farms and our agriculture, and we don't, we're, we're not the Old Testament institutions of Israel. We're not celebrating Sabbaths and new moons and festivals and those kinds of things anymore, but the heart is the same. And that's why Paul tells the Corinthian church, look at Israel and don't fall into the same trap that they did. Avoid the pitfalls of the nation of Israel. Isn't it amazing that God takes a whole nation as a paradigm for your individual walk with God? This whole issue of hypocritical worship, which involved the offering to the Lord, that whole issue reached almost an intolerable boiling point in Isaiah's day. And then finally, boom, God just speaks out of the void in the sense and and, and and, and an oracle of rejection for the the Israelites and their worship. Let me just read to you one passage. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 13 to 15. He says, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. This is really strong language, isn't it? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, The calling of assemblies. I can't endure the iniquity of the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon, your festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, and I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered Isn't that amazing? The depth of Israel's hypocrisy. And as a nation, we know what those sins were. It was hypocrisy at the gates, which meant they were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing the people who couldn't fend for themselves. The gates were the place where people were supposed to come and get a fair hearing. The judges would take care of them. There were lawyers there that would help them, but they couldn't get a hearing. They couldn't get anybody to plead the case of the orphan and the widow. And then the same people involved in that sort of harsh, cold, condescending uh, uh, activity then turn around and go into the temple and worship and think that they're bringing a, a heart of devotion to God. And God says, I reject it. I completely reject it. Now let's move to the last thing. And that is that gospel-centered generosity, therefore, it doesn't just have love as its motive, but it also has Christ as its example. And this is really the high point of the sermon, the high point of the, well, I better not disappoint now, right? But uh, that is the high point of the letter, really. Look at verse 9 and 10, uh, verse 9, one more time. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Sincere love and then to argue it, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect sincerity coming your way in sacrifice. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You say, Well, that sounds like a lot of back and forth. Yes. Because Paul wants you to read this verse very carefully because this verse contains all of the glories of the gospel right here. And if you take this phrase by phrase by phrase, you will see that what this passage is teaching is nothing less than the substitutionary, atoning work of Christ and what He did on the cross. This is the ultimate analogy. When you think about sacrifice, we don't do this well. I don't. When you think about laying down your life for your brethren, that could be anything. Helping someone move, that's a big one right now. Right? When you compare that with uh, just sitting in your house with the AC and the ball game, that's really hard. I love you, brother. You know? Just not sure I want to get up off the recliner right now. But you know what I mean. In the smallest things, we should should gravitate towards the example of Christ. to say, uh, sorry to quote the old cliche, but what would Jesus do in this situation? How would he act? How sacrificial would he have been? Well, first of all, it all begins by acknowledging the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he graciously bestowed his, his benefits upon you. And then, from there, it even moves on. Notice, he says, that though he was rich... Such a small little phrase, and I want you to look at it in the Bible, because this is huge Christology right here. When was Jesus rich? Before He started His ministry? Impossible. Before He started His ministry, He was living in a detestable place called Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? So this must be referring to Christ even before He was born how could Christ, before He was even born, be described as rich? He was eternally rich towards God. He was eternally clothed with the glory and the majesty of His own eternal royal glories. This is a this is, this is the community of the Godhead that was for all eternity wealthy with itself. He was lavishly, wildly rich. And it describes several other things. Yet, for your sake, he became poor. So the pre-existent Christ, who was glorious and rich beyond our wildest dreams, he says, became poor for our sake. And of course, to see that, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. This is the analogy of the faith. And this is the analogia fide. This is Scripture teaching Scripture, t- uh, Scripture interpreting Scripture, Scripture expounding upon Scripture. God is His own interpreter. And it says there in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Christ Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't anything for him to grasp, at because he had it, but he emptied himself. That's it right there, the emptying of himself, the setting aside of that which was rightfully his, okay? He says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, could there be any greater condescension than that? God, why are you even mindful of me, cries the psalmist, let alone become like me. Become like me. He took on the form of a bondservant, literally doulos, slave. In an ancient culture, to be a slave was not to be in a very high position. A lot of times. It says, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He became obedient. Here is both the active and the passive obedience of Christ implied. He was obedient in the way he lived. He was obedient in the way he died. Perfect absolute, perfect, selfless giving of himself. Therefore, I conclude that what this is teaching us is that humility of Christ should teach the church that selfishness is not fitting for the people of God. It's not fitting. Being stingy is not fitting for the people of God. We ought to give of ourselves, of our time. That's why if you do church membership with us, one of the things we tell you is that what will be required of you here is that you give of your time, your energy, your resources, your money, your prayers, your service, your gifts, spiritual gifts. This is a back-and-forth situation. This is a, you know, we, we, we all have to grow based upon the, what everyone else is supplying here. If you all think you're going to grow just because of my ministry, forget it. It's the person next to you that's just as vital as what I'm doing up here. and What they contribute, Paul says in Ephesians 4. But let's go on. It doesn't also just tell us, look, we shouldn't be selfish, but also the incarnation resulted in enriching his people. And there he says that through his poverty, he says, so that through his poverty... uh, says, you, excuse me, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, today, it is my my distinct privilege to tell you that you are wildly rich. Wildly rich. But you won't find that in the garage. You're not going to find that in drywall. You're not going to get that in granite. You are wildly rich beyond your wildest dreams, but you're not going to find any of it at the mall. The riches that he's talking about are, are, are solely spiritual riches. And for that, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This just reveals all of that to us. Ephesians chapter 1. So many people in the church think that they're spiritually poor. So many people in the church have not often tapped into all the spiritual blessings that have been given to them because their eyes are on things that, God, that Christ did not intend for us to look at as the riches He gave us. Yes, He gives us everything, all things, your job, your money, your home, everything, your health. But even more than that, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we don't add to that, yeah, but I think I need something else. (laughs) This is exhaustive. As Peter says, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, everything. Every resource that we're ever going to need is there. And then he explains it here in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, your riches began long before you were ever around. God in his eternal decree, God in his sovereignty, chose to set upon you his covenant love and to make you his own. To make you his own. He says that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's where I'll stop, to the praise of the glory, because that's where it should end. Worship. What do you do when God tells you you have become a fellow heir with Jesus Christ, and now you inherit what He has? Worship. That's the response that should flow from us. Now, last of all, brothers and sisters, when we look at this context, we, we imagine what type of people we ought to be. If, you don't, if you're not impacted by the condescension of Christ that he came down, if that doesn't fuel your love and your, the sincerity of your love and the sincerity of your generosity for others, then you need to take another hard look at Jesus Christ, what he did for you and what he calls you to do and what he calls you to do for the church. The gospel, therefore, should we should, we should look at the gospel and consider the gospel every time we give, every time. Every time that we give, we should think about the gospel and think about Jesus and his laying aside his riches, taking upon the poverty that he does not deserve, and the biggest point of it all, as he says here, for your sake. It was for your benefit. How can we not therefore live for the benefit of others? Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, um, so grateful for a Christian worldview today. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you've given us instruction, even about what we do with our money. Lord, and I pray that in all that we do, and every time we give, no matter if it's a special uh, offering, some sort of special uh, mission, or some special ministry of the church, or just the regular offering of the church, I pray, O oh God, that you would make us generous people knowing that generosity rubs off just like the Macedonians rubbed off on the Corinthians. And Lord, as we look to the generosity of others, I pray that we would also be mature enough not to become envious, not to become jealous, not to become, Lord, conceited in any way. Father, I just pray that you would give us balance, let there be equality, exactly the way that Paul's talking about here, Lord, among us, that when we see a brother or sister struggling, destitute, in need, that we would want equality for them. We don't, we don't want to become impoverished ourselves, but we want to lift them up to a better place, to a place, Lord, where they can be uh, secure and just, Lord, in a place where you can just, Lord, lead them and guide them by your providence and, and supply every one of their needs. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and your feet in this area of mercy We pray, Lord, that you would give us the mind of Christ, which is exactly what Paul is calling for right here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.